Welcome back, and here we go for another episode of FileMaker Talk. Welcome to a multiple podcast. So we got FileMaker Talk. We've got two folks from Saline here. I think it's so fun when we get to do a cross-release podcast like that. And then we have Bill Heiser uh, yes. as well. Bill, uh, I think so many of us have known each other for, I don't know, 20 plus years. Um, but we're going to really talk about uh, hosting, really kind of the hosting world, and which is a ton more around that. Really, I think it's that's not really even defining it as a bill. It's uh, give me a better definition of, what, of what's our scope today. Yeah. So, you know, when you when you talk about hosting this particular clientele that we're probably targeting is interested in the FileMaker hosting component, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Saliant has a product offering called Saliant.cloud, just a name. It is our for our managed services provider or managed services offering. Inside of that, we do many, many different things. Everything mm-hmm. from you know, things with Salesforce, things with pure cloud native applications, uh, lift and shift app modernization, IoT, AI, ML, service storage, uh, VDI, a number of different things. But today, you know, I think we'll primarily focus on uh, the FileMaker hosting, what that means and what is encompassing that, and then how it tangentially relates to some of those things. I think more specifically around, you know, leveraging the cloud um, to help I don't know. They're probably the white word is, um, you know, shore up some shortcomings of the FileMaker platform, uh, mm-hmm. address some of the issues that we and I know specifically Matt and yourself and you know others have dealt with in that world over the years is, you know, supporting FileMaker and some of the things that we've architected into the cloud infrastructure to help shore that thing up and do a little bit better job there. So I'm excited to talk about that and what we do specifically. Yeah. I'll throw kind of one thing out at the beginning that I don't know may or may not be controversial. I think FileMaker, the platform has one kind of Achilles heel, and that's FileMaker Server. It's the one thing that's kind of a single point of failure. And you are doing a ton of work uh, to basically reduce that risk as much as you can. So I want to talk about some of the technologies you're doing there. Matt, what do you think about all that? Um, As long as you've got the systems in place that keep you up, then you're good to go. So, I mean... If you're a small guy and you're running bare metal and you're just on, you know, a shared host or a dedicated machine, or if you're running with a service that they're running cloud containers and, or if you're running multiple with Kubernetes, then it's all just a matter of is what you need to access up and, uh, are you monitoring it? And so, yeah. From what I understand, I I imagine they've got, I mean, they've got whim over there. So, I mean, they've got the the God guru of all. Well, at least the public guy. He puts the stuff out there, which is good. He doesn't keep it just for himself. <laughs> yeah. And Bill, it's a huge room full of Mac Minis, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Mac, Mac, Mac Minis and uh, under cabinet. Uh, a couple of Mac Pros that are sort of yeah. sagging in yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> we, <laughs> the, we really the, go all the in our hardware. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's well, a so whole lot. You guys are run. Are you? I like, would assume you guys are running containers. No, actually, we're not. I'd be more than happy to talk about oh, that. Well. Uh, we, yes, we can start yes, off yes. with that. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, you come down to a couple of factors that I think really matter. And and in our lab area, before we vet things out into production, we go through a whole series of things, everything from the way the machines themselves, the EC2 instances are configured. We've looked at virtualization of that stuff. You've sort of got an abstraction layer that lays there. We've looked at, uh, obviously, the different platforms, Windows. We've looked at Unix. We've looked at, obviously, the later stuff in Ubuntu, those sort of things. And at the end of the day, there's a much bigger picture that comes into play here. We've, you know, containerization has its pros and its cons, uh, price performance, um, scalability, uh, operational uh, management. There's a number of factors that come into play mm-hmm. there. And, you know, when you when we look at it, we have to look at it from a perspective of cost. We have to look at it from a perspective of um, performance and supportability and really interoperability. And I'll use that generically for a second, but let's talk about cost. You know, one of the reasons you'd go to containerization is cost. Um, another reason would be for some support capabilities. And there are certainly some 
um, advantages to that. You know, you're encapsulating the OS, you're encapsulating a configuration, you're encapsulating the database itself. But FileMaker itself also has some nuances to it in the way that it operates. And you got to get down to the details here and peel back the onion. But mm -hmm. overall, I think what it comes down to is containerization, I think, has a place and it's coming. FileMaker, the product itself, has to have a few changes done to it that I think they're even moving towards some, some things that will make that a much more appealing thing. Uh, we've... We've gone through production releases or uh, testing releases and looked at how it would be affected in our environment. But from a performance perspective, there's some some gains there as well. Um, you know, when you compare Linux or, or Unix versus Windows, you know, women, I've been back and forth on this quite a bit of is there a performance advantage? And the reality of it is, is we've kind of come to realize that there's some things that are better and there's some things that are worse. And it mostly comes down to your specific application and the things that you're doing with it. Um, hmm. When you compare that platform uh, against a Windows platform, there's also some things built in. I mean, Windows is a rich operating system. It's been around a long time. It has a lot of capabilities that are sort of innate to it. There's also some interoperability that's built into the OS that we just don't right. have on the Unix side yet. Um, I, I want to take a before we get too deep into this. I want to take a mm -hmm. quick step back because I'm realizing that maybe some people don't know what containerization is. Yeah, uh, it's something that I didn't know that much about until not that long ago. So, like normally, FileMaker server is one computer. You've got the OS and the FileMaker server installation are on the same box, whether that's Windows or or uh, Linux. Just one of you describe like what's different about containerization in a way that's more than I understand currently. Matt, why don't you take it? Sure. Um, so if you have a computer and it's got an operating system on it, and you install FileMaker Server alongside that operating system, that would be bare metal. You're basically running on hardware. The next stage is when you've got hardware that has high capability, and you want to be able to run multiple different operating systems, then you're going to create a VM, which is a virtual machine. Mm -hmm. That's a separate, isolated um, OS, and FileMaker could be in each VM, but it's very... Uh, resource and processor intensive because you're setting up all the different drivers. Now a container is it's a step beyond you basically are running you're letting the OS still manage all of the OS things but you're then just running a subset of all the things that you need to do they spin up faster and it's better resource utilization and you can have a lot of them running side by side so it's sort of like a I don't know. You just get more bang for the buck without the overhead when you go with a container versus a full VM. Right. But then, Bill, you said there's some downsides to that, and I'd like to know more about them. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you have to take into consideration that OSs have to go through patching. You've got different things that have to be updated a period of time. You have to reach in and do monitoring. You have to reach in and you know, execute things on there for collecting statistics. You've got to, you know, upgrade individual components. You may have to extend interoperability. And with the containers, you've got to reach into those individual containers and save states. You've got to bring those states back. Mm -hmm. Moving EBS or connected volumes in and out of them can be very difficult. Um, mm -hmm. You've got to be concerned about extension of the partitions. You've got to be concerned about a number of sort of, we'll just call them OS level type stuff, as well as the infrastructure around that. So, yeah, yeah. It's like the if the container OS itself has an issue, that's going to affect a whole host of servers, which wouldn't be the case. I guess it would be the case if you have a big VM, but uh, but big VMs like an AWS, those are all redundant. Yep, yep. Uh, so the, the whole benefit of AWS is everything is redundant. Servers, everything. Well, it yeah, you on your uh, except the stack too. Your your knowledge base is going to dictate what direction you're going to go. I mean, you need to leverage your human yeah, resources yeah. in order to be able to manage something that can grow sure. beyond, you know, the yeah. few people running it. Yeah, absolutely. And you also have to take into consideration who your target client is and what their use cases are, because you know, one size certainly doesn't fit all. You have some capabilities when you're outside of containerization to move that needle, you know, much easier, much more dynamically than you do inside of that container. So, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. Our testing has shown us that there's some real promise there. And we've, we've had some further conversations with some other organizations about moving to that model in some cases, you know, Claris uh, server, you know, coming down the road here, you know, we've got some builds of that available. The the thing is out and we've looked at that. And that, I think that holds more promise to that than the current iterations of FileMaker server do. Hmm. So we'll see where that materializes. Mm -hmm. We've been doing a lot of testing with 
you know, some pre-builds and, and kind of kind of figuring out where we're going to go there. But it is a much bigger picture when you've got to think about just, hey, I'm going to stand up this instance. It's going to run like this and I don't need to do all these other things with it. Uh, again, it gets down to the weeds, but overall, our take on it is at this point in time, we're just not quite ready to pull the trigger on that for all of these other capabilities that need to be in the place. Again, managing hundreds and hundreds of units is way different than managing, you know, your manual 50, you know, machines that you need to do. So scale right. comes into play there. So yeah, 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 for sure. Like the like I was thinking about it when I was prepping this, the Drake equation comes to play when you're when you have that many uh for those who don't know what that is it's a it's a math equation to determine whether or not what the likelihood of intelligent life in the universe is which is the number of stars with planets times the number of the percentage of stars with planets times the percentage of planets that have in the habitability zone times the percentage of planets that are in the uh age where they could actually have had life times the percentage of that have oxygen in the atmosphere blah 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 so they're all you know teeny tiny fractions times a hundred billion and mm -hmm. you know the the numbers get high, they actually get measurable. If you have 40 servers, you don't really have to worry about stuff. If you have 2000, you do, because yep, the yep. things that are super rare are going to be happening every week. Yeah. The other, you know, the other piece of that too is, is how do I say this? When you cross over barrier into deployment models, there are different areas that may be not so obvious that are affected. Like one by example is cloud formations. So we are, a cloud formation service delivery certified AWS provider. And can you define that a little bit? Yeah. So at the end of the day, uh, and I was going to get into some of some differentiations, but one of the key differentiators I think that we bring to the table, at least from an architectural perspective and what we do in the MSP is this notion of a couple of key areas. And one of them is cloud formations uh, delivery. So it's a program that you get Basically, we can call it certified. You get designated to, you go through some validation, you show examples of your work, AWS validates you on that and gives you a delivery program designation. And we've gone through that for a number of types of things. So everything from, from you know modern cloud development using React and some other components and gateways and APIs and stuff, we've applied that methodology to our deployment for all of our clients. So yeah, yeah. So it's a deployment it's infrastructure. It's a code so in code. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. Yeah, it's so code. Is how does how does the cloud formation product from AWS change how you would deploy a FileMaker server? I guess is what it's, I kind of want to know. It's, it's a great question because it is a fundamental differentiator for us. I think whenever we put together a client's implementation, I'm going to use some generic terms. You know, client comes to us and says, "We would like your assistance here." Mm -hmm. We're going to leverage a lot of automation. A, because we want to keep costs down. B, because we've architected to do such. And C, because it's very reliable. You know, humans get humans make errors. We just do, right? And we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of steps that go into place to get something into place. It's one thing to throw a box out there, give it an IP, install an SSL certificate, and go, go to town. It's another to put one out there that has CloudWatch monitoring and, and system auditing and um, you know, uh, automation for snapbacks or what we call, you know, snapshots mm -hmm. and automation for monitoring and all of these things are going to place setting up the VPCs, routers, gateways, security groups and roles. All of those things are implemented through an automation routine. Not only does the server get implemented and built dynamically, it's injected with pre-built stuff. You, you use cloud formations to stand up the networking, allocate out resources, build gateways, set up security groups and security policies, apply them to those instances, give instances and the backend yeah. infrastructure the rights to communicate with each other. And it's all done in a way that is consistent, reliable, vetted, and repeatable. So by way of right. example, just last I think it was about two or three weeks ago, we had to make a change globally. So we're talking about, I don't know, we're probably active right now in 17 different regions across the globe. That uh, was one of my other questions. Yeah. I mean, as we support every region, we exclusively leave out the Middle East and Russia for reasons that you can probably guess for yourself. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, we, we we deploy across almost every region available in AWS, including local zones, which is a whole different topic we can talk about. But, but at the end of mm -hmm. the day, we needed to make a deployment change that would affect every single instance, not only FileMaker servers, but the services that they interact with. And rather wow. than having to go through every account, and build a policy group and change the networking and open up different security ports. We wrote a modification to our cloud formation. We ran that through a vet and it runs through a test. 
verifies whether these things are going to happen. And then we deploy it out to the entire infrastructure. And within a couple of hours, the entire region of every uh, account is updated. And with that, that goes to say, hey, it's cost us very little to do that update. It keeps us up to date. It keeps us, how do I say this, more enticed to keep it up to date. And it also enables new capabilities much, much faster. So as we implement oh, yeah, yeah. new capabilities, like for example, we're introducing something called the OptiFlex uh, disaster recovery model. And, and we can talk more about that later. But at the end of the day, it required this modification so that the instances themselves would have access through a specific security group to interact with another set of services operating not only in one account, but in every account. And that would have been a monumental task to modify about 17 different things. Without that code automation in place, without that infrastructure that it was pre-built on that, or to go back to our earlier conversation, mm -hmm. if you had done it in containers, this would be a whole different ballgame. And so you got to keep in a con you got to keep under consideration not only the the technical implementations of what you get out of the, but how it affects the bigger picture. So this is a great example of how that architecture really benefits us, thereby benefiting our customers. We don't have to charge them for the time, and we can bring features to life much much sooner. And also, right, right, right. like. In, in some yeah, cases, Bill, it will also give us the ability to roll back certain things, right? So mm -hmm. if we've got something that oh, goes yeah. haywire, which, you know, God forbid, we've we've kind of designated that we want to invest in something that will give us yeah. the ability to go back and, you know, move that move the needle back, too. So that's another yeah, aspect. Like, remember that, that time when FileMaker Server had this bug that came out? And the other time that it, that happened, and uh, <laughs> that's funny because yeah. when you said that, when you said we can deploy uh, globally, I mean, no matter what the tech is, whether you're writing a shell script or whether you're writing Windows batch script, if you're the engineer and you hit that button, you're saying a prayer right before <laughs> that when it goes out to multiple oh, yeah. hundreds <laughs> think, of machines, think, you're like, which one is going to fail? Which one of you're yeah. looking for it? You know, you which one has the outlier that you hit? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that would be true if you didn't have the architecture that I feel like we've taken this into consideration. Before we deploy anything, our lab is virtualized to this to support this concept of every different configuration. Realize too that our instances are pre-built baked on a number of variants and those variants don't get changed. So we know exactly how it's going to affect every single implementation. And we can, we can run that through a number of series of processes. For example, we just did the server 2023 modification and we're going to do an evolution in that case we've already vetted it out to the basic configurations we have we know exactly what components are going to change we know how the volumes are going to be affected and we can automate that into our process and kind of run a complete environment test and know the results of that before we we do that so it right. i agree with you you are sort of precedent in those cases i think it, as an MSP, one of our primary jobs is to eliminate that complexity and eliminate or at a minimum reduce that risk exposure for our clients. Yeah, and course. if you do it wrong, yeah. you can you can yeah. suffer those consequences. And again, it's about investing in those technologies. I mean, our lab, we don't charge our clients for, right? But we have to do those right. sort of things. And it's, a, it's, an, yeah, it's an expense, but one that became necessary a number of years ago. If we're going to do this, yeah. we do this right so all right i got some, i got a couple pointed questions mm -hmm. um uh because they're occurring to me as we're talking about all this awesome stuff so normally when you have to upgrade your filemaker server from 19.5 to 19.6 to 19 19.2023 <laughs> uh and there's you have a couple of options right as a normal user you either leave the os there and you install the new version of a server hoping everything's going to work or you deploy a new um a new os and with the FileMaker server already installed and configured, and then you just map the data drives over to it. And I'm also really curious about like how many data drives do you have? Do you have a separate drive for data and backup? Like wh what is your process for like a regular customer to go from 19.5 to 19.6 server? All data's detached from what's operating. I would too, but I want to ask Bill. That's your most flexible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the answer is yes, yes, yes. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. So first of all, yeah. there is a complete obfuscation between server configuration and data. And mm -hmm. there's some nuances to that with the product, you know, a combination of both hard links and the way that we attach EBS volumes and the dynamics of that. And then the idea of keeping backups in mind. So we want to come back to that here in a little bit, because this architecture 
dovetails into that. So you've got a couple of things you need to consider. First of all, we want a complete abstraction away from the server and the data. That includes both FileMaker data as well as container data. Um, and of course, what, those are separate volumes probably? They're not, and there's a reason okay. for that. They could be. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, well, you shared space. space, yeah. You know, there was a time and place when I would have been the biggest proponent in the world of, uh, and but we're talking physical hardware back then when it was like, okay, you have right, different right. types for this and, you know, there'll be an array and it's hardware and it's hardware raid and we're going to do all this stuff. That's irrelevant now. It's just irrelevant in the cloud. It just doesn't really matter. Everything yep. that's connected to that is EBS, which is a la elastic block storage. And you can say. choose to, to make those same yeah. and you can do some things with that. The other yeah, piece change the size on the fly without having to reboot. Yep. Yeah, all that yep. beautiful we stuff. We can modify configurations on the fly. We can specify Speed what instance type that IOPS. we want, throw more. Yeah, you can do IOPS. The funny thing about IOPS is we'd love to be able to get more performance out of it. But honestly, the Draco engine, there's a limiting factor there where you sort of hit, yeah, hit, that's so hit a level and there's really nothing you can do there. Now, the data migration tool is a different story, but we can talk about that later. But getting back to that. We will stand up an instance. Uh, so let's say we wanted to we wanted to update from one particular version of FileMaker to another. Uh, mm -hmm. We're going to take a couple of things in it. First of all, um, we're going to see what the reliability of that particular installer is that we are supplied. Um, <laughs> been working with yeah. them since. So you, I don't. You know. mean the installer, not even just the version of server. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, what yeah, version yeah. is in the installer were supplied? Um, you know, Windows has a whole uh, package definition file um, that's very rich for installation. Um, it hits sometimes and it doesn't hit other times. Oh, yeah, I've seen it fail. Automated and unautomated. Um, you know, where do they put a reboot in the call? And bottom line, we've just mm -hmm. come to realize that we really can't rely on that. that and that's okay. But what it comes okay. down to is some cases we will do a complete automatic deployment. So we have a lot of automation that occurs. So let's say, for example, it's Sunday night and we've notified people that we're going to deploy to the North Virginia region uh, an update that's going to say go from 19.4 to 19.6. In that case, we may say we've vetted it out and we've, we're going to run an automatic deployment and we will push that out. We'll use an API backend on uh, AWS to call some SQS. We'll throw that into EventBridge. EventBridge will make a call over to the OS, do the work that it needs to do, log that instances, reboot that box, and you're up and running. And that will work. Yeah, so that's, you know? yeah, so, let's, let's, uh, so that means like when we get to the FileMaker server part, that means uh, uh, log, log all the users off, close mm -hmm. the file safely, stop the server, and shut down the service, and then... Uh, I'm, are you, are you always replacing the machine? You're not just doing an upgrade on the OS of a new version of FileMaker. It, oh, so it, sometimes really, it really depends. Uh, let's go to okay. the other end of the spectrum. So that was a very simple example. And that's going right, to be right, your, right. what I would consider your dot releases in between. Although right. FileMaker is a little bit different now. I mean, every release is kind of an update, you know, whether it be 19.4, 5, 6, or I don't know, I guess 2023 would be considered a bigger upgrade. Uh, we consider it a bigger upgrade. <laughs> Um, really? But there, well, yeah. for a number of reasons, I, I think there's some. Oh, so let's go to the other spectrum and I can talk about okay, that. Okay. So in that particular case, you know, we've got a new operating system capable of running server now. Uh, it brings to it some capabilities that we would like to take advantage of. The Windows operating system innately has some capabilities that we can leverage. Uh, it's interaction with AWS and AWS's CLI, AWS's APIs, the support of that. You know, once we go to the cloud, we're limited on, we can't. I can't even think about trying to continue to support, say, Windows 2012 or an older version of, of something, you know, Java and other pieces come into place. But in that particular case, we may want to look at what we call an evolution. And this is an ex this is more to the extreme, in which case we can use our automation to deploy and build out an entire new server that's sitting alongside of that of the production one. Then once that is in place, there are a number of other automations that can come into place to do the following. Due to the architecture and the way that we set up a generic build where there's an abstraction between the data and the server configuration, you've got a few things you've got to get from the old server, server script schedules. You may have some drivers. You may have some uh, script automation that may be going on. Uh, you may have some plugins that need to be there. A lot of the plugins, a lot of those configurations and those scripting things are obfuscated off into this data volume, which we can snapshot. We can then literally issue a command to say, bring this one down. Production goes down. We take the volume, regardless if it's one gigabyte or one terabyte in volume right. size. 
we disconnect that volume dynamically, reattach it to the other one. And due to the architecture of the way that the machine talks to that volume through some of our proprietary ways, it will mm -hmm. just recognize that as that new volume and it will bring those files up based on that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you can you've got a variety of different things, but the I think the thing that is most important here is not understand all of the moving pieces, but to understand this. Because we are in the cloud and because we can leverage the cloud infrastructure, EventBridge, SQS, AWS APIs, uh, and talk to those in a modern cloud methodology through those APIs and modified mm -hmm. keys and secure ways to do that. And each client is provisioned into their own blast radius, its account, its VPC, <laughs> its, its security roles. We like are not doing any shared accounts. You know, it's very easy to do all this automation when you're just operating in a single tenancy, which I know a lot of people do. And it's unfortunate because it's a problem when it's a problem and it's not. So do you mean shared accounts? You mean like I am users in AWS? No, it's, it's way more complicated than that because um, when you when you establish an account in AWS, you're establishing sort of the the first barrier. And the way that account is built can either be like a lot of MSPs will, you know, they'll say, well, listen, we'll have one account and we'll put stuff in a bunch of different regions and we'll stand up people's FileMaker server or this particular instance in this account. Automation and the rules of security and VPC peering and VPC sharing and account sharing becomes very simplified. Oh, but you mean a whole AWS account? Yes. Not, okay. Okay. Yes. That's all. And then, yeah. and then inside of that, then you get into multi-sharing stuff. We don't do any. You know, we're not in the business of doing file sharing across servers. You know, we just don't. It's not. You know, each individual client has their own servers, their own restrictions on those sort of things. So mm -hmm. uh, we're not getting into that model. That model has been dead since fifteen. But what we are in the business of is controlling that blast radius. And that, that blast radius is not only for that client, but it's also about extending that client. Because say, for example, we have a number of clients that have very advanced networking going on, you know, where we may have multiple VPCs pointing to multiple VPNs across multiple different network segments that are piped in for both replication, authentication, access mm -hmm. to ESS on-prem or in third-party SaaS models. And- right. By isolating those accounts and doing that, controlling that, we can extend that individual clients without affecting any of the anyone else's infrastructure, let alone exposing anyone else to anything. That yeah, is yeah, a yeah. fundamental difference in operating in the cloud that I, I think, I, I'm, I'm going to be very honest, we went down that path initially and very mm -hmm. quickly through our relationship with AWS and trying to get in to become an AWS advanced tier partner that we had made some assumptions that we just, you know, it's one of those things you don't know until you know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and you know, early on, we kind of figured out that we needed to restructure some of that account structure to control that and allow for extensibility. So going back to the conversation about upgrading, we would, mm -hmm. we would, we're going to take each implementation and look at where the client is in their evolution, meaning are they long in the tooth and their particular version they're supporting, you know, um, you know, what's the server build? What are the other components involved? What plugins they do they have? Do they have a large amount of data uh, for container data? Uh, do they have right. a large amount of scripting? And we're going to vary that depending upon what's available. So with 2023, we've come to the realization that we've got a new OS build. We'd love to take advantage of the new capabilities. Uh, that's going to shore up to our, what we call our OptiFlex uh, family of products, which we can talk about later, but it's it's about supporting the sustainability pillar and the cost optimization pillars, which are part of the AWS uh, well-architected framework. They're about saving star customers and giving them a lot more flexibility. And we're going to be able to leverage that with server 2023 uh, Windows and both FileMaker 2023, or I guess server 2022. Anyway, yeah, point yeah, B is yeah. we're going to do an evolution. We're going to dynamically build those new server infrastructures, and then we're going to stand those up migrate over the components that are important for that particular implementation, and we'll be able to swap those volumes into place. That effectively mm -hmm. reduces our downtime to minutes as opposed to right, right. Yeah, to run a full server upgrade and doing all that. Um, yeah, hours down for hours or half a day. All right, yes. you've penalized me twice with Optiflex. I think now's the time. I, well, know I, have, a, I have a question quickly, though. Okay, go ahead. Uh, when it comes to your package of automation, considering everything 
Uh, how much of it are you using FileMaker itself as your front end? Are you doing a lot of it through a FileMaker, the FileMaker admin API, or are you doing a lot of this through uh, Amazon's provided automation through script their scripts and yeah, I would say about Lambda, 90%. whatever, or are you communicating yeah, through a fi- like. I know that the listeners would love to know. Yeah, we've got this one FileMaker, and it's actually communicating to Lambda, which is communicating to our FileMaker servers, and we're communicating directly to our server, and we're all doing it in this FileMaker database. That's what. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think at the end of the day, we kind of ran out of room with FileMaker in terms of you know it supporting that stuff a long time ago. You know, we. So is it more of a web UI? We have, uh, well, I mean, FileMaker is a component of it, but let me describe it to you and to get some idea. So at the end of the day, about, I would say 95% of what we do from an automation is pure cloud native. Everything from Lambda to SQS, to gateways, um, you know, a number of other features that talk directly to the AWS, both CLI. Sometimes there's callbacks to data APIs in FileMaker to like post results of things. Yeah. But a big thing, for example, right now, currently, right now, operating and actually just fired one second ago, like literally 11.45, we just kicked off a global snapback. That global snapback runs about 13,000 jobs every 15 minutes. It's a entire organization where we go out and we are doing a a snapshot of a volume. We are cataloging it. We're using EventBridge. We're using Lambda. We're using some communications to the FileMaker uh, 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 data API. And we are making a bunch of connections to store all this stuff. That stuff happens on the back end, and then we report it back. Some of it goes to an ESS table that we do access with a FileMaker solution, but we also have a whole different React front end that does a bunch of other things. So at the end yeah, of so the day- a global backup of every single client's thing every 15 minutes, basically? Every 15 minutes. Dang, you know, yeah. We have some That's clients- That's not enough. Who, I think 12 minutes is probably what they really expect. They'll come out. I, I think so. It's been an hour for a long time. <laughs> and then we we oh, did yeah, a yeah. few changes to, um, to do it. We have two different models. We call it premium and standard. Standard's an hour. When we go to 2023, we will invoke the- the full 15 minutes. Um, and the reality of it is, I don't care if your database is one megabyte or one terabyte. A snapshot through AWS occurs in a matter of milliseconds. It takes me longer to get the issue of the command through the OS than it does to actually do it. Um, and the beauty in that it also is not only is it instantaneous, but we're leveraging AWS snapshot on the backside, which means... Mm-hmm. And we get into a little detail, but they, you'll probably find this intriguing. I don't do any FileMaker backups on local EBS for a number of reasons. Number one mm-hmm. is cost, because I want our default is every 15 minutes for the last 24 hours, once for every of the last seven days, once for every of the last four weeks, and once for the last of the every of the last three months. And those mm-hmm. are all cataloged and online and they are available to you to mount as a secure FTP point to allow a much more robust file transfer and secure yeah. HTTP is, right? Yeah. You can through our portal, you can expose the live databases by dynamically opening a port through a request that's happened through self-service, opens that up, allows you to use an FTP tool to move stuff back and forth into place, download whatever you want, replace a file, put it back into place, modify container data without having to have an unsecure open port to RDC, right? Right. Because the number one effect that we see in our monitoring is brute force attack. It's constant. It's daily. You know, I hate and, watching uh, auth logs. <laughs> yes. And and, and, and the reality of it is, is we just shut it down. We just, you don't allow, and we dynamically open ports based on rules for RDC, even for our own administrative access. But coming back to uh, the snapback process, that occurs. And then when that occurs, we're only capturing the deltas. So if I have a one terabyte solution, I the first time I bring that on, I take a snapshot, I, I am capturing a whole you know terabyte of that. But then from that point on, I no longer am, I'm not storing data on an EBS, which is 12 times more expensive and isn't durable. We're immediately storing that as a delta for the for the next 36 mm-hmm. backups that we do in S3, which is 11 nines of durability can be cross-region replicated, again, based on your risk exposure, right? Everybody's got a different exposure. Costs <laughs> are different at those. But we then have access to those things to bring online at on demand. And we have three ways that we can do it. And both two of the three are self-serve. A, 
You go to our portal, you say, I want to mount this snapback. It exposes it as secure FTP, dynamically opens the port, gives you uh, access through a, 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 a dynamically generated set of credentialing. You get what you need to do, do what you need to do, and you close the thing back up and it dynamically shuts down after a period of time, or you can force it closed at that point in time. Second one is sell through through opening the, the um, active enabling live FTP support to the live database series, both secure and uh, the standard location, in which case you can move things around. So if you have a set of container data that you need to move, you have access to do that in a very secure way, you can move files back and forth. And the last one is this, uh, which is our first level of data recovery. In the event of a problem, it can be very cumbersome to restore a terabyte worth of data. I mean, it's EBS, so it's fiber channel on the back end, but it still takes time to copy stuff from EBS to EBS. In yeah. our particular case, we had a client that services, let's say, um, let's say a very secure government set of information, right? And this is this is very spiky in terms of users, and they have a very large set of media. We are talking seven, nine, I don't know, they're probably up to 10 terabytes of media now. Um, that was going to take three days to restore. All right. Um, <laughs> our methodology with our third piece of it was uh, total restore time to recover was seven minutes. And we went to a backup that was three minutes old. So that. Are you running wow. parallel block volumes? Nope. We don't need to. Uh, we don't, we, well, the way that it fundamentally works is we're leveraging snapshots and, and, and without getting into how snapshot work, imagine if you will, we get a snapshot of the volume as it comes up the first time from that point on, you're doing a block level comparison and you're only right. storing the deltas of those block levels. Right. Then when you request a restore, you're effectively looking at the block levels from the whole and then each delta that changes in it, it merges those right. and you create a new volume that represents all of that. Based off but of the deltas. Of, based yeah. off yeah. the deltas. And then because of our architecture and because of the way that we sort of fit the images together, if you will, and all the pointers and the way that it's designed, we can just disconnect a volume and substitute its mount point back into place. And that server then comes up exactly as it was at that point in time. FileMaker is unaware that something has happened behind the scenes and it buys us a massive amount of capabilities for that as well as the other component of optiflex which is our disaster recovery uh, model so yeah. these are the things that, that people won't 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 and probably usually can't spend the time to create for themselves. That's usually what you're paying for when you're paying for hosting is you're paying for the infrastructure that you yourself one won't take the time to either learn, but then two actually implement. So you hit it right on the head. You you got to find somebody to leverage this stuff. It would be silly for Saliant or quite honestly, I mean, any FBA that even had a large amount of clients to, to think about investing in all of these tools if there wasn't going to be a larger use of them. It would be very difficult for me to justify to say one particular client, even if they were a large enough client to say, we're going to implement all of these things just for you. I mean, Salon.cloud was kind of built out of necessity for us. I mean, I know that everyone here has dealt with situations where either the, let's say your client you're working with, their infrastructure team may not necessarily be versed on FileMaker Ease. Is that a right? Is that a word? Can I use that as a word? Sure. <laughs> and quite honestly, how does it work with their infrastructure? And 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 thirdly too is, and this isn't meant to be a, a, a derogatory thing, but we sometimes lack the experience. I mean, I spent 15 years at FileMaker working with a lot of FBAs to help them overcome some of this infrastructure piece. I mean, prior to FileMaker, I worked in some large organizations, Dow and Lilly and, and Boeing. And these are large implementations. And my infrastructure experience was very helpful in me helping customers solve some of the things. I hate it when somebody has this wonderful solution and the infrastructure or the configuration right. is, is, is an implement, is a, is a barrier for them to get over. So us taking control is too strong of a word, but us providing this capability and shoring this up provides our customers and hopefully our FBAs with a better experience that they can count on and have some faith that things are done the right way. And I can say you know, I don't want to toot my our own horn, but you know, we've been very lucky to have a significant amount of of success. And 
over the years, we've really refined this into something that we can count on now. And we feel like that, um, you know, the offering is really vetted at this point. So. Which is nice because I I was snickering while you were, while we're talking and just reflecting on, you know, years gone by and you're like, okay, a one terabyte backup. And you're talking about a fiber backplane. I'm thinking, yeah, what would that be like on sneaker net? Hey, give me the sand disc. <laughs> Let's <laughs> copy the file and walk it over. Yeah. It's just yeah. a different world than yeah. before. It's just amazing. Just a, a stack of sidequests, 44 megs. <laughs> well, when, we, when we stepped into so, this world, you bring up a good point, you know, and, and, and I like to, you know, it's all about leveraging your FileMaker skill sets and leveraging your we'll just call it infrastructure expertise for lack of better term. But what I found early on, and, you know, lucky I had people like Mike Duncan and, um, you know, uh, Brian Ingert had been extraordinarily helpful in helping us architect. And we've worked with AWS to, to get some of their engineering input on some of our architectural designs. But, but, you know, I look back over the years and those experiences have helped to form how this thing gets architected. And those experiences are designed to, like I say, shore up things that the product may not do the way that we want it to, or expose mm-hmm. new capabilities that I think are fundamental to a better experience of, with, with FileMaker in the, in the product line. Um, you know, I, it might be a good thing to talk a little bit about um, some of the things behind the scenes about how validated is, is that, you know, and what customers might want to look for in any MSP, regardless whether it be Solana.cloud or whoever they're going whoever, with. Yeah. I think there's some Yeah, that, that might tie into one, one of my other questions, which is like, what disasters could have happened that your infrastructure prevented? What are the things that other people who are, who are in this uh, space? By the way, we've been sitting at 97 acronyms for a while. So there's three more before we hit 100. <laughs> it's right. going to be pretty exciting. I'm not actually <laughs> counting them, but there's been a lot. I'll, I'll have three more within the next, uh, next five minutes. Sweet. So I promise I'll do my You bring up a good point. Uh, We recently have seen a couple of issues, and I'm not going to name names because that's just not proper to do, but I will describe the situation. Um, Back, I don't know, maybe six months ago or so, uh, we were made aware of a ransomware attack on one of our, um, you know, one of our um, uh, competitors, I guess, for the lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think... I think at the end of the day, you would be a fool to sit there and try to make a claim that you are uh, oblivious or you are um, in the clear from any of these type of stuff because it's a moving target, right? But what I do think it is, is it's the MSP's responsibility, including ours, to think about the unthinkable. You know, um, mm-hmm. it's very easy to, to not have a backup strategy. And the reality of it is, is um, you don't need it until you do. Right. Yeah. This yeah. particular case, you know, this ransomware attack, basically, for those unfamiliar with the core of it, is someone has gained unauthorized access to an instance, uh, and they are they will encrypt that instance with a key, and then they will hold the data and its contents at ransom until you pay the money, and then they'll give you the key, or hopefully they give you the key. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, you got to think about that stuff. And when I talked about the snapshots, I think one of the one of the things that we want to do is we want to make a diverse and completely separate firewalled off section between backups, different levels of backups, and right. different storage systems. And again, with the separation between uh, OS and data, forget about configurations of apps and all that stuff, because all of that. I can stand up automatically. So yeah. an, a ransomware one a, approach to deal with that would have been to have an automated ability to rebuild an entire infrastructure, just destroy the other one. We don't care, yeah. but you got to get mm-hmm. the data, right? Well, if that data is stored in a firewalled area that's prior to that point in time, and even if it were encrypted and it got put onto that encrypted, it would mm-hmm. still be in a different data store that would be un- and it would be written at a block right. level, and you'd be able to restore from that. Yeah, it's still reducing risk. Like I mean, it's, it's been it's been said that if it if the right hacker really, 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 really wants your data, they're going to get it. And uh, I think it's your your goal to say, okay. Every area that I store things and everything that I do, I have to put up some firewall, some blast radius. And mm-hmm. every the risk mitigation strategy, again, is different for every customer. So a baseline mm-hmm. set of things may be okay for someone, you know, but you go pay on that and you say, well, what's your time to recover? What's what's in your budget? Is an hour yeah. okay? 
is a day okay? Is 10 minutes okay? And then you have to supply different levels of that. And each of those have to have to adhere to the models that not only financially appeal to them, but also protect them in those areas. And, you know, we, we saw another issue just what, I guess it's only been a couple of weeks ago where a particular vendor had a fire in their building. Yikes. And that fire uh, caused no damage to the physical equipment in that data center. However, what it did do was cut off access to that. So you couldn't get into the building. The building lost power. The building lost internet connectivity. So three days before you can get in the building, a day to get the electricity put in, another day to get the fiber put in, another day to rebuild all that physical layer hardware and get it back into place. So again, we're back to that question. What's your risk mitigation factor? And have you thought about those things? You know, so in our case, we've given some consideration to that type of scenario. And what you're really talking about in our case is a complete data center failure in a particular region, in which case we have the option and some default stuff to say, listen, we want to protect against regional failure, both from a connectivity from a data exposure and a configuration. The last thing you want to do at two o'clock in the morning on a Sunday is pull out your, you know, your 16 page rebuild my environment and reconfigure and all of that. Our OptiFlex product is designed for that level of risk exposure where not only is the data abstracted away and stored away in a secure model and, and, and even in a different region, but Mm -hmm. the configurations of those servers that can be modified and brought up instantaneously. So you take our cross-region OptiFlex Mm -hmm. uh, product, you may be sitting in the North Virginia region, and we will mirror a configuration over in the Ohio region. Completely different geographically, different different data centers, completely different set of of hostware Mm -hmm. that it's running on, and we will stop that. We'll stop that instance and we will only run it when we're ready to engage it or when we do what's called packaging. So we shuttle those those snapshots over to that other region. Now we're in two places with 99.119 versus durability. Mm-hmm. We've got the ability to stand that up. So instead of going through all of that, you go to our portal, you select launch from a recovery point, which is mirrored from those last 15 minute snapshots that we've stored mm-hmm. and you can restore to that point and you'll be up and running with a full DNS switch. And if you require, because of that account separation to be able for your uh, disaster recovery box to reach back into either your on-prem or reach out to that third party through another, we can establish that connectivity yeah. to bring that up dynamically too. So it's a full feature configuration solving that Hey, if I really need it, it's a press button and everything's yeah. up online. Early when I said that the one of the Achilles seals of FileMaker's FileMaker server, what you just said, put that sentence in all uppercase with multiple underscores and 15 exclamation points because all of that work was needed because of it's not MongoDB at the back end, which already solved all that stuff, you know. Um, but you've solved it. So it's there. It's awesome. Well, even MongoDB, it doesn't couch DB, MongoDB, it doesn't matter what pieces of the puzzle you're using it all comes down to the automation the glue the scripts that you stick in between that makes everything work orchestrated i I get that i'm just what i'm talking about is like what you know what you would have to do if you're running your own filemaker server versus what you would do if you were just using a cloud appliance you'd have to know uh, amazon's infrastructure how to write scripts how to do your filemaker server maintenance and all the other stuff that you need to know yep yep yep. yeah all that the intent of the i would just trust someone is obvious is is to try and let more people leverage that stuff the investment for a single client is never going to be worth it the investment that we did for us initially was like i said out of necessity we wanted our customers to have a better experience we wanted to be able to service them in a timely manner we wanted to shore up some of these things when we have a problem we want to you know we want to process that we we know the steps. We know exactly what we need to do, and we can, you know, come to re- recover them very quickly. And the other thing that, that that is sort of hidden in the waves here is in the weeds is our ability to service that and troubleshoot is massively exponentially faster because we know all of the moving components and we pre-build and pre-bake into things. You know, Wim uh, and I spent a good oh I don't know months building 
some configurations for Zabbix, both in some configurations for uh, Windows performance monitoring. They get deployed. We can engage them. And we can look at them over a period of time, and then we can troubleshoot that. And if by chance we find that we've got something that, you know what, that might affect other people. We've got automation in place to roll that change across to this thing. So it is, it's been one of those where the benefits were obvious at first, but the, the things that we found since then really, in my opinion, kind of outweigh them, but it's about yeah. putting it together so that, you know, other people can leverage that. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, the, the cost to do that would always be too much for one individual. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, we've been going for a while, uh, and I get a feeling we could nerd out. I mean, I know there's a huge amount more depth we can get into, but is there any other key things you want to really throw in and talk about before we before we wrap it up? I have one area that I'd like for people to 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 think about uh, when they're considering um, um, an MSP selection. You know, there's a couple of things that I think really stand out that that are important because you're effectively you're either partnering with someone who mm-hmm. is now going to be in charge of either you as the client or your clients, so say as an FBA, and right. you need to understand what their investment in that is. And you know, we've done, I think, three things that I think will are, are good differentiators and things that you should be asking. Uh, and one of them is sort of falls in the categorization of, you know, Salian so has been an FBA a partner, you know, a, a platinum partner for a long time. But we're and we're mm-hmm. lucky enough to have some people like Monk Duncan and Wim. Uh, maybe lucky or unlucky to have someone like me, but that's yet to be determined. But point yeah, is, Carl. we put a lot of our thought into <laughs> we put a lot of thought into the experiences that we've had of building the infrastructure and t- taking our cloud expertise and trying to model that. That's fine and that's all dandy. But I, I do think there's some advantage there. The other one is our our investment in AWS. Whether you agree AWS is a premier cloud leader or not, we did a lot of due diligence. We spent a couple of years looking at cloud providers. Uh, we feel like there's a clear advantage there. And well, our, they're bigger than all their competitors combined, I think. Yeah, so, right? and, and, and from a particular service level and the things that we want to do and where we are heading as a company, um, you know, we've just established our CCOE, which is our cloud center of excellence. We now 98. Have, yeah, we have, <laughs> yeah, yeah, 98. Uh, we have, uh, oh, I got, I got four more for you here real quick, Sweet. but um, we've invested in AWS and we are an advanced tier partner. It is very different to become an advanced tier partner than to be a select or registered. Those are easy hurdles. This requires a level of vetting. This requires a level of, aud- of auditing that has to be done. We have to maintain a minimum monthly level of revenue, uh, meaning we, our run rates for our clients have to grow exponentially. I mean, since 2015, we're averaging about 65% growth year over year since that time. Uh, last year, we had a good record year and, and clips that a little bit. But wow, that is cool. about showing that we're investing in that technology. We are mm-hmm. an SPP, which is a, um, a solution preferred provider. That gives our clients access to economies of scale. It also lets us bring technologies to market and in, in through the AWS stores. It also lets us help customers make that next step. You know, I think of FileMaker as kind of a light step. You know, FileMaker hosting and bringing it in the cloud, you know, you can do it. But the next one is, hey, leverage S3 or some sidecar capabilities we have through APIs, leveraging some other backend type of stuff. And in that particular case, we've gone and worked with a number of clients to do things like uh, get proof of concept funding for them, help them get funding from AWS to do that. And as an advanced tier partner, we can do that. I talked about the cloud formations piece and how important that is to that. And then outside of that, that's AWS saying we're doing it right. That's AWS giving us credentialing saying we're doing it right. That's us saying we're doing it right. But on top of that, one of our requirements is we have been trying to get into some very unique spaces with Salign.cloud. And one of them is um, uh, higher education and some government work and some other things. That mm-hmm. has required us yeah, totally to different. seek out third-party validation for things like SOX, HIPAA, GDPR, um, higher education, community vendor assessment. These are things that we have gone to a third party called CyberGRX, which basically stands for um, Global Risk Assessment. This is a third party who has audited our environment, our structure, our code infrastructure, our processes behind the scenes, um, you know, everything from how do we deal with clients' data? How do we secure it? How do we secure access to this? And we have been validated by that. And we are now level two certified. Uh, which basically puts us at the top tier of in, in any SM or medium-sized business. Your level ones are going to be people like AWS and people like right, right. 
Google. Um, and that puts us in a position where we can handle a lot of secure data. And you as a customer then can leverage that. You know, I can't tell you how many times we used to get, are you HIPAA compliant? Are you SOX compliant? The reality right. of it is, is that is a sort of an iron triangle. You've got the AWS piece, you've yeah. got Salient vendor or hosting company, and you got your solution. You can check off two of those boxes and you can leverage that you know, by hosting in that environment. And it's a, AWS know, will just give you a SOC compliance certificate because they have theirs you can forward to clients too. But yep. that's different than you being SOC compliant, you know. It is indeed, but you've got to have, it, let's say that you go through all the work. HIP is a great one. You know, there's a lot of things you've got to do in your solution to be HIPAA compliant. There's right, also right, right. things that your vendor, i.e. your hosting provider, and who that hosting provider is running on to do that. Right. He mm -hmm. solved that heavy lifting for you. Um, we just recently engaged with a white label client, and that's a new terminology. But it, what it means is we have partnered with an FBA, or I guess it's called a CBA now, Clarence Business Alliance Partner. Mm -hmm. We've got a, a few of them under our wing now. And what we're doing is we're white labeling them so that they can provide their entire solution in a SaaS model where it's white labeled. So, you know, the vendor knows nothing about us. We don't care. We're just augmenting right. staff of that FBA. So everything from domain names, secure SSL, we package up the deployments and build cloud formations to support the automation of deploying their solution. And in yeah, that cool. case, we've got VDI in place. So they've got virtual desktops. We've got a CNA app in place for them. So we can bundle all of those things together. Those kind of things coupled with the infrastructure, the architecture, the cloud formations, the monitoring, all that, I think really differentiate us. And those are things to ask if you need them, you know? Yeah. And again, I, I caution people to think about, it's not a question of if, but- If it's when, yeah. Yeah, kind of true. Yeah, and then, all you right. know, so the other thing that was on top of my head was, you know, some of these- uh, the features in the Salian.cloud portal that may not be obvious to some people. I don't know if we've got a time, but I wouldn't mind mentioning a couple of them if you're interested. Couple, but we do got a ref. Yeah. So let's take 30 seconds to talk about uh, um, two small ones. Uh, mm -hmm. We talked about the OptiFlex dynamic uh, um, disaster um, recovery. Disaster recovery for yeah, both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a piece for. There's peace for the cloud. There's also peace for on-prem to in the cloud. And that's an interesting model because we give you some capabilities and some tools to stall on your on-prem server that will take whatever your configuration is and it will mirror that through packaging, through gateways and APIs, use Lambda to format that. And then we stash it into a slant.cloud uh, capable hmm. format and make that available to you. So we have a couple of clients. Hmm. Who so if your on-prem goes down, you actually revert to slant cloud. Interesting. Yep, Everything slows down a bit, but yeah. Yeah, it can, or funny enough, in some cases, yeah. it, it can actually go the opposite way, depending oh, on- Oh, sure, sure, sure. Depends but, on the thing. Mm -hmm. But we have something called dynamic Docker, which is part of that. And again, it's about the sustainability and, and um, cost optimization. How it works simply is we have a lot of customers that have development environments. And development environments don't need to run 724. And one yeah. of the things about the cloud is either the dynamic nature of that. So we give people the ability through the cloud to simply go to their portal and stop a server whenever they want. You know, they can stop and they reduce their costs and we still monitor yeah. it. We still keep it up to date. We launch mm -hmm. it and stuff. But the other thing is to set it up on for production uh, situations where you can run it for only 12 hours a day. Come in at six, automatically fires up, provisions everything yep. out. Yep. We run it for 12 hours a day. Uh, and along those yeah. same Amazon lines, charges every single thing is charged by the minute. Yep, it's Again, it's whatever. charged yeah. by that, and, and it can really reduce yeah. costs. <laughs> One of the key ones that I absolutely love, uh, regardless of your opinion of WebDirect, we have something called uh, Autoscaling WebWorks, and it's part of the Optifex family, and it works very much like this. Whether you're using WebDirect and you're using WebDirect workers, which are an augmentation of server. Yeah, separate computers. Yeah, yeah. yeah and you, they run on there. One of the decisions you have to make is, how many do I need? At any one point in time, and you always have to scale them to the, to the, the capability and yeah. what size should they be? We remove that entirely. We remove that question entirely by simply saying, if you subscribe to this OptiFlex auto scaling, mm -hmm. you will set a threshold and say past one user, past five users, I'll use my primary machine. Anything past that, I will dynamically allocate the instance, its configuration, attach it put an SSL on, attach it to that and scale that automatically. So if you- Up and down, yeah. Up and down. So if you mm -hmm. want it, if you you cross your threshold of let's say five, 10 or 20 or 50, whatever you just think yeah. worker one might want, you can scale that out. And then it dynamically shuts those down. And not only does it shut them down, but it de literally deletes those configurations because we don't care about them. They're ephemeral. Right. 
and there's no, no data. data stored on them. Yeah. We just want the processing power and we want to remove that load from the server. The other capability of that, and we have a client who really was able to take advantage of it. They service um, a large telephone provider for um, um, access for their technicians to come in every morning and mm -hmm. get their workloads. And at the end of the day, they re-upload the work that they've done. Sound familiar, right? But we know we have about 100, 120 uh, technicians need to come in and download in the morning. So we've built the capability to pre-bake or pre-warm. And we can just say, hey, listen, at 6 a.m., I want you to have three workers ready to go. Fire them up and set them to this size. And then starting at 11 or 10, I want you to start looking at that and scale it either up or down, right. you know, depending on a load. What happened in their case is instead of running 365, 724, all five instances, because about 120 users, we yeah. find that in the morning, Monday through Friday, we operate about three instances on the web direct workers. Occasionally per month, they'll see the fifth one come forth and fifth come in. But 90% of the time, those three do it, but only for those three hours. They scale yeah. down between 11 and three. They scale back up to two to three for the hours of four to six, and then they all shut down overnight. Reducing their cost by 96% of running 724. So again, leveraging cloud infrastructure yeah, to yeah. do this automation for us, building upon what we've done with the rest of the architecture and really invoking a lot of that is, is really what we're trying to do here because yeah. we want you to have a good experience, but we know it can't cost that much. Um, and <laughs> yeah. I, I love some of the, I good love part. some of the things we've been vetting these for a while. We are fully releasing dynamic docket. We're releasing the OptiFlex for both on-prem in cloud, and we're releasing, uh, the auto scale web worker with the 2023 release, as well as a couple of other features that are in there. But, uh, bottom line, you know, I, my point was to get across to y'all that there's a bit more to hear and we're, we're trying to put together something that hopefully we're proud of and that people will, will trust us and, you know, cause the end of the day, how we do cool. is going to be a direct reflection on them. Well, I got I got one final question, which is this: under whose keyboard is the post-it note with the eight-character password for the whole entire works written? Actually, the reality <laughs> of it is, is it's completely dynamic. Uh, it, everything is spun up dynamically. We use keys uh, that are interchangeable all the time. Uh, no particular account is even active. I'll give you a great example of how serious we take security there is Even one root we, password to the root user well i mean that's that, that better right? be in you can a couple of vaults and maybe an air can, gap AWS one AWS allows you to with exactly. the root account to not actually have ability to do anything yeah right? so you can that's remove. the thing you know you can you can there's a couple of layers here i'll, I'll articulate a couple of them so mfa to any root uh, to any account. No one has access to root except one. And that's stored away very much. Like we say, we don't utilize root accounts or anything. Right. MFA to get into the, into any Amazon stuff, multi-factor to get into anything to our infrastructure. On top of that, there are dynamic security policies that are generated and tore down for requests. So for example, if, if anyone from our team, after they've gone through our policies for, you know, the silly things like when they get background checks and when did they audit? When did they come in? Are they still employed? These are processes that gain those certifications right. and things. They go to that. They want to make a request to do some work that requires them to get to a, to a particular instance. Let's say RDC, for example. Well, no RDC parts are open. They have to make a request. That request is then generated. That talks to an AWS API, puts it into EventBridge. The EventBridge issues a request to that. We dynamically generate a security group. We dynamically apply that security group with a set of rules that are based on where that user is requesting from. That port is applied to the instance. It's set for a particular time period. That person then can only access from that route, only that person. Their credentials yeah. are dynamically generated, dynamically created, and then dynamically tore down after either A, a period of time, or when the request of that is done. And it is all logged using, you know, CloudWatch in order to make that happen. Yeah. So these, it, it's so easy to say, well, yeah, you can do this, you can do that. Um, you know, when, again, you're managing a couple of boxes or you don't have these security requirements or this risk mitigation in place. It's a whole different ball game when you really need to be thinking about those bigger pictures. So it, it just give you some example. That's one of many. Yeah, definitely. Where we try to be real serious about that stuff. And we wouldn't pass the editing anyway. You know, we passed the miter where we were at or above all of the classifications. And there's like 15 or 16 different, you know, categories there. Hey, Adam, we hardly let you get a word in edgewise. 
Yeah, it's, it's, and uh, I'd love to know your thoughts on all this stuff. <laughs> no, honestly, um, it's been a pleasure to to sit here with you guys and working with uh, Bill and these other guys has been great. Um, yeah, I'm just glad to get the word out here and appreciate you guys taking the time to uh, let us uh, kind of talk about this stuff and and chit chat. So thank you. It is always so much fun to like nerd out hardcore and with uh, with uh, other filmmaker people like you. We so I'm rarely really get glad the you, opportunity. Really glad to you talk. guys came on. Yeah, and we so rarely get the opportunity to talk like this. So I, I appreciate both I Matt and yourself taking time to to talk about it. We get to dig into the weeds a little bit. If then, you know, if it ever comes an opportunity to dig a little deeper, we take a narrow our focus and get down in the weeds and uh, you yeah. know, go there. But uh, this is this is really helpful. I appreciate you both taking the time. I think it would be so awesome to go back in the video and put a little counter of, the, of all the yeah. acronyms and, and yeah, I was going to say that was some serious I mean, VRU. What's VRU? Yeah, for sure. Variable it's a lot of resource TLAs and utilization. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I made yeah, it yeah. up. Nice. And I, I threw out TLAs and FLAs. <laughs> Three-letter three acronyms and four-letter acronyms. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, having built a bunch of stuff with AWS, you know, I was in the 50 server side, like you were talking about. I became familiar with what a lot of these things were. And I saw the, I totally saw the light about doing all this stuff. But I had no resources to be able to get uh, with our with the app work size that we were at at the time. Uh, and I'm so I'm I'm thrilled that it exists that you've done it that you've done all this effort and um, and paved the way. Yeah, you got to get so out of much for that. your scripting and learn whatever yeah. scripting you want to use within Lambda, JavaScript, Perl. Yeah. I don't want to though. I just Java. I want to I want to teach FileMaker development. That's my world, and do podcasts and make videos. But that's <laughs> uh, yeah. Cool. Hey. Thanks everyone hey. for your time. This is awesome. Yeah, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, I guess yeah. it's uh, yeah. GFN. Goodbye for now. There you go. Goodbye for now. <laughs>